Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, if only that was true, Jim. Hello, this is David Eastall. Welcome to another thrilling episode. As always, playing the finest in indie pop. And also, we do love an uh, interview and a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of... Barry Andrews, formerly of XTC and League of Gentlemen, but uh, better known as a uh, member of Shriekback. And this is the interview. And um, in one easy to digest little uh, segment, really, uh, this is where I've been talking about the indie years from between 83 and 87. But he was um, there from 81. And this is the interview where Barry picks up the story. Barry, take it away. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, we were kind of um 1980 81 we started up yes and before that you would also you'd obviously been in um XTC as well which which oh. which I was a bit surprised that it started in 72 because I'd sort of I suppose I was coming of age in the musical world sort of mid 70s to late 70s so it was kind of you know that was when they were having their hits so obviously you've got an amazing background in in the world of music Okay. Yes. No. <laughs> so, did you could you just give us a bit of an idea of of your sort of early years before Shriekback? Uh, yeah. I um I was in a covers band in Swindon when I left school, or actually while I was still at school, and then I went in '76 down to Exeter. Um, joined a uh, another kind of covers band really but slightly classier called dice and we played a lot of um gigs in the welsh valleys when there was still a welsh mining industry which was uh very horrible mostly yes um because they sure can drink and we had a female singer and it was just they she became the focus <laughs> 300 drunken miners uh yeah so that didn't last long and then I came back to Swindon, hooked up with the XTC boys. And that lasted a couple of years until I realised that I kind of picked the wrong band if I wanted to be a songwriter and, you know, contributor to the material. Yes. In that, they had, they had two songwriters already. And that was kind of arguably one too many as it was. So, you know, the yes. last thing they needed was my tunes. But I forced them... Forced two of them anyway onto the second XTC album, and then I just decided that this was hard work, and I should probably go out and do my own thing. Was so, it, um, did that feel like a big decision to leave the band? Because obviously they'd been going for a while, and were, were getting kind of chart band success. Uh, well, not by the time I uh, left. They um, they'd had yeah we were yeah we did two albums together. And then um, they didn't really have any hits till after I was gone, significantly enough, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it was a big decision. It was um, we were pretty close, really, as a band, and it was, um, and we, yeah, been through a year and a half, really, of very intense gigging and some remarkable experiences and just that first thing that you'll only ever have once which is sort of going from being a completely obscure band to some someone that people know about that was getting um 
you know, with a record deal, who getting on pages of magazines and stuff. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that's a, um, a memorable thing in people's lives, I think. So yes. we, had, we had that kind of thing together. So it did seem like a big, a big move to be leaving. But um, yeah, I I was very clear. I hadn't. There wasn't any room for me to breathe really in XTC after after that second record yeah. and uh, i was fed up having fights all the time quite wearing exhausting so yeah. so when you formed shriek pack did that come together relatively well because actually from all the people i've interviewed there's been very few people who've had that kind of experience of being in in a band that's been you know getting quite a success and plus had been so established to, to then sort of walk straight into another band so quickly well, there was an interim uh, group, uh, a lesser-known band called Restaurant for Dogs, which I formed with um, some people from Swindon, friends of mine that I'd met in London. And that was the first time I'd ever actually um, been in a group that was... The idea was my my material, you know, my vision, if you like, of um, how music should be. So... Um, that was uh, quite. I think, yeah, I, I think I tested a few theories in Restaurant for Dogs, and one was about um, some kind of collectivity. Um, so I, I wasn't going to be, you know, one of those fascist mu- musical director type people. We were all going to equally share in this thing, and and it turns out to be quite hard to do, as I discovered. That <laughs> <laughs> actually, a little bit of direction. It's quite a good idea. Yes. Um, so we, although there was a lot of firepower there, actually, there some real, real talents in the group. Um, Kev Wilkinson was the drummer. He went on to play with China Crisis um, and the Waterboys. Um, but yeah, it, you know, there was, it was, uh, there was a lot of talent there, and I think I could have probably, if I'd had a bit more sense and a bit less idealism might have uh, marshaled these resources better but as it was we we ended up um playing some gigs in london uh we were quite we there was a lot of interest about us actually i think it on paper it looked quite a good idea until people came along and heard what it sounded like (laughs) and uh yeah that was the end of that so we um we recorded one single for warner brothers which was a version of le freak by chic um, which is going to be on a, I'm doing a, a solo compilation from music from that period, seven, 79 to 80, that'll be coming out quite soon on our own label. Excellent. Um, so yeah, that's, that's on it. Um, Le Freak by Chic, considerably, um, vandalized by these, uh, by these English people. Yeah. Um, who don't go to discos very much. <laughs> Yes, and probably have got yeah, anyway, so, we, so we did that, and um, uh, Warner Brothers said, "Fucking hell, that sounds terrible." And uh, so they were, they didn't release it. And it's fairly soon after that that um, Dave Allen got in touch, and I'd been kind of managing and doing logistics and being the producer and and the singer and the keyboard player in this group for. I get best part of 18 months, I suppose. And it was really getting to me because I, I don't take it easily to that sort of thing. Organisational stuff is not really my forte. And it was I was finding it incredibly stressful. And 
and there was no money. We, you know, we didn't have any record company uh, backing of any kind or, yeah. So everyone was scra scraping, scraping along and it was very intense and unpleasant, some of it. Yeah. So Dave Allen uh, appeared, having just left the Gang of Four, and he thrives on that sort of stuff, does Dave. He's, um, it's meat and drink to him, making phone calls and organising equipment and talking to people in record companies. And he just basically said, look, I'm putting this band together. I'll do all that. You can be the musical director. What do you think? And I said, well, it, Restaurant for Dogs is a really good band. Why don't you join the Restaurant for Dogs? Because we've only got a, a temporary bass player at the moment. And, uh, and then, you know, we'll have the best of all possible worlds. And Dave said, no, you have to join my band. Otherwise, it won't be my band. It'll be your band. <laughs> so, oh, right. I see. Okay. Um, keen sense of politics you get from playing in the Gang of Four, I guess. <laughs> and yes. uh, so I ended up um, going over to Dave's camp. Um, and that was, at the time, was Brian Neville was the drummer. Linda Neville was kind of ostensibly our manager. Dave's girlfriend, Emma, was the singer, and Carl Marsh was the guitarist. Um, yeah, so that, that, again, sort of suffered from other other problems. Um, and after a little bit, uh, Brian and Linda left, and so did Emma. Um, as Emma was Dave's girlfriend, that was a little bit tricky. But so so it went, and then it sort of distilled down to me, Carl, and Dave, and that was the you know the um, the combination that did Tench and Care, the first two albums. Yes, but I think Dave was um, quite sussed really to see that XXDC and X Gang of Four would probably get some kind of interest uh, people. So that was that was our kind of foot in the foot in the door in yes. terms of getting a deal and everything else. And did the did the sound come together? I mean, did you have an idea of what you wanted, or was it something that you had to play with before something started to gel? Because having spoken to quite a few yeah. people, you know, there was often that point where they'd been together for a while, nothing was happening. It was like, we'll give it one more shot, and then suddenly the sound slides, you know, clicks. They get a better producer, or someone has a better idea, and then they think, oh, actually, we're going to be able to play out of our normal little group of friends and partners who have to come along to see us but you know we might even get fans from that we don't even know so did did your sound you know how did that develop well there was something uh, that i was striving for in restaurant for dogs which i guess was some kind of um mixture of uh, reggae rhythms and and um production um values and something to do with a, um, a long continuum of sound, i.e. it wasn't going to have uh, lots of chord changes and be like very song-driven, it would be kind of groove-driven. I, I was excited by the idea of doing something like that. Um, I guess a certain amount of funk had gone in, into, the, into the mix, so listen to a lot of funk tunes, it's just groove. Or no, Fela Kuti was another influence, these African tunes that goes on for ages and ages just... It's a groove, and mm. it all on the, in the same key. So that was one sort of idea that I wanted to prosecute, and and the idea of yes, the the reggae sound sound image, you know, the the big warm bass with the very trebly things in the middle, and something um, 
not really so much coming from a song perspective as coming from a a, um, a sound perspective. Um, so you're making records rather than recording songs. That was sort of another idea, I suppose. And then, uh, yeah, so when we did the first album, we were trying to do that, but I was finding it quite hard to work with all these new people who who hadn't been steeped in my aesthetic as the Restaurant for Dogs people had. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error. But then after a little bit, and it's, I think especially after it just became me, Dave and Carl, um, people kind of um, took on roles in the band. It's, it, it was clear that Carl was a sort of talented songwriter as well. And um, and he kind of took up his his own kind of angle uh, on the on the songwriting in the group, and Dave was you know this rock solid um, kind of anchor for the whole thing. So it, it, yeah, so in the middle of Tench, I think we started to get an idea of what was possible with the three of us, and then in, in Care, um, we cleaned up our act as well. There wasn't wasn't so much. Um, drug fun going on by the time we got to care and uh, and that made a big difference we were sort of a, a bit more conscientious about what we were doing and as the fog cleared <laughs> you could see oh yeah there's lots and lots of things and the, the, there are more colors available and care was um recorded i think in something like 25 days from no songs to the mix so it was actually written in the studio and it just seemed uh, there was some kind of a uh, a breaking of the breaking of the dam at that point. Everything seemed to start to flow into something that sounded like us and nobody else, and that seemed like um, oh, this is our voice. You know, this is our artistic voice. Yes, I mean, did it? Um, I mean, obviously, at that point, it was kind of you know, obviously that was the post-punk period. But then it was like on one side, you had that kind of Trevor Horn sound that was kind of starting to dominate the charts. But then you had that indie scene, which had started with bit sort of, I suppose it was quite folky and fey, but then it became a bit more, uh, I don't know, especially with the Smiths and then other bands coming along like Stump yeah, and Bullshit. I think before that, well, there were, you know, the, um, the, I think the 80s was very much a, um, a time of two tribes, actually. The, um, you had the, the big shiny... Um, the drum machine and the gold lime suits, the uh, the spandau ballets and the um, heaven seventeen, uh, not heaven seventeen, ABC, um, ABC, yeah, yeah, and then this kind of underbelly of um, uh, music that was a, a reaction against all those values and usually a reaction against the um, the materialist Thatcherite kind of uh, cultural atmosphere of the time. So you had bands like us and um early scritty politi in fact that was a, um the early scritty singles are really underproduced and clonky and people are banging bits of metal and uh green is singing about hegemony in his little little falsetto voice and it's uh it's a long way from the uh you know the uh the big shiny records that they made halfway through the career Yes, because it wasn't just that sound, there was the sort of, I suppose I always thought, also thought it was that ethos or the politics of it, because it was kind of interesting having watched this Duran Duran documentary 
on BBC Four the other night and realising they just they just were wanted to be party boys and they still seem to want to be party boys. And I, I was thinking, but the 80s, we, we were all angsty and, and everybody was getting upset about stuff and having political campaigns for, for good reason as well. And, yeah. you know, and there was the Enterprise Allowance Scheme that a lot of musicians and artists went on just for a year just to try and get off the dole and to, you know, have a nicer life. So it was quite... It was quite that period, it was so ang- you know, like I said, it is such an angsty period, and yeah. and obviously there was like you know you you were either in the John Peel NME camp or you were sort of smash hits top of the pop. So you know, obviously you must have sort of been feeling on that sort of left left of centre quite a lot. Yeah, and there, I, but I, th- I think also there was a feeling that um, that had to do with technology. I guess that the the, uh, the things like the Fairlight, you know, and the and the Trevor Horn School of um, big production and um, uh, in the art things like the Art of Noise coming along that there's uh, there's some great new technology to be played with and it wasn't like we were a you know Ramalama guitar band so they, we wanted very much to to get involved with these big machines and see what we could see what could be done with them um so yeah there was there was we we wanted to sort of get get the fairlight away from the uh from the uh the bubblegum bands and um yeah see what drag it down into the weeds see what could be done with it <laughs> and obviously cuz most bands you know that I've done interviews with. They last sort of five years, and it's kind of quite a quite a predictable kind of um, narrative. There's, you know, they do the they get a sound, they get a single. John Peel possibly plays it. Well, you know, if he does, that's that's kind of it, really. They do the session, they do an album, and then you know, virtually ninety percent, ninety five percent. You know, that second album is is really difficult. If they ever do an American tour, that kind of ends in absolute disaster and they come back and literally it's days before they all say, I'm going, this is the end. So you managed to sort of navigate through the eighties quite a long way and doing a lot of albums. Yeah, I guess we did. Um I mm, I think we uh we stuck together and we on the whole did what we wanted to do um this is quite a lot of pressure from the record company after after we sort of developed this aesthetic of or the working method of writing in the studio i.e we make records we don't make write songs and then record them um you know that's a quite a white knuckle ride really especially studios were not cheap in those days good ones so um you go in there with no material you really are kind of flying by the seat of your pants in terms of, right, we've got so many days and we have to not only produce and polish and finish these tunes, but we've got actually originating them and developing them uh, at the same time. So, it's, yes, we got a lot of pressure from the record companies to uh, to not work like that or what go in with, a, with a, an outside producer who would hopefully kind of uh, rein us in and... Uh, introduce us to more cost-effective methods of making records. Uh, and we just resisted it. We just said, no, fuck off, we're going to do it like this. And because we all stuck together, there wasn't much they could do, really. So um, we got, I think, as far as uh, Big Night Music before we finally bowed to pressure. And then we did one album after that. So, yeah, there was, what, one, two, three, five 
five albums, I think. Which is impressive, really. And then obviously Go Bang, and then the band finished. Was it? Was there the writing on the wall at that point? Yeah, well, David left, so that was obviously a huge thing. He was very much, you know, this solid rock that you know, the whole thing was built on, and it was his idea. Um, so he buggered off because we weren't really getting anywhere fast enough for him. Um, record company were like, oh, okay, right, Dave's left. Um, I think if they haven't had a big crossover hit yet, then uh, they should have one now. Otherwise, we're going to um, drop them. So that was that was expressed to us um, that you know you could, we're going to give you one more record, and if you don't have a hit off that, then uh, then that's your lot. And we yeah i i suppose because we'd kind of run out of ideas we we just said me and martin at that stage it was um we'll get in this producer and perhaps he will be the magic person who will uh make her arcane and difficult to like music into a into a lovely top 40 hit and then everything will be great forever but of course it doesn't really work like that does it and mm-hmm. i think um what Martin said to me at the end of recording that with, with this outside producer, Richard Burgess, who was a, um, a just a sort of depressing music biz figure who was just kind of um, ironing all the things out that, that would have been quite nice left in and, um, yeah, getting paid far too much money for doing what he's doing. And uh, yeah, so at the end of it, we we came up with this album that sounded a bit more commercial than we generally did. Um, and not only was it unsuccessful commercially, it was uh, it was the kiss of death to many Streetback fans who said, "Oh no, they're trying to sell out!" Oh god, how embarrassing! And so uh, we pissed off our fan base, and we and we still got dropped. So there's a lesson there. <laughs> God, that is true. Did and was it a def, Did you have a moment where you could say this is this is the end? The band are done. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I think it was at the end of Go Bang. Really, I just. Um, I think we. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, I can't remember. There wasn't a uh, an important um, event or anything. It was just uh, coming back from the, we recorded it in the Bahamas at Compass Point. That was all, you know, the, all of that superficial glitter of music business life. There we are in the Bahamas, man, you know. And uh, But actually, we're on our last legs, aren't we? And this is, the balls has gone out of this now. Um, so I think by, by the time we got back to London, we, uh, me and Martin were a bit like, I think we'll just leave this for a bit, should we? And I said, I felt it was slightly tainted by um, doing stuff that um, was, yeah, so so eager to please, really. And uh, I, I started doing um, weirdo music for uh, for performance art events, which was uh, about as far away as you could possibly get from yes. <laughs> that, that world. But then a few years later, you you sort of suddenly got another album in in ninety two. So that was was that a surprise? I mean, well, it was, it, again, it was a Dave a Dave thing. So I, I guess I tried to do a, a few other things. I've gone like right into uh, very very strange, um, quite avant garde sort of music, 
in that time. And then also had tried my hand at doing a sort of guitar, guitar driven um, rock, rock band called Illuminati, which was um, also uh, we did an album with them. But um, it was nobody seemed to want me doing anything commercial. It just seems <laughs> it's the kid. Nobody wants us to do this, do they? So um, yeah, uh, I, was, I was in the anomalous position of going around to record companies with this uh, big shining rock album with this girl with this amazing amazing voice and all these quite commercial sounding songs. I thought about love and loss and all that sort of stuff stuff that people can relate to so say and uh a&r people were saying oh god but what's happened to shriekback they were really good are you going to do any more shriekback stuff that's like what the band where none of the singers can sing and all the songs are about reptiles no no i wasn't planning to do that i thought <laughs> i thought this might be the sort of thing <laughs> uh yeah but no it was not to be so um in 92 dave allen had now gone to america and was working for a management company run by a bloke called Ron Stone, who um, had formerly managed Nirvana. So this was kind of grunge time, uh, ground zero. And um, Dave was launching this label under the, um, under the umbrella of Ron Stone's company. And basically what it was is he wanted a band with a little bit of established clout to kind of set the ball the ball rolling um to give a bit of uh, exposure hopefully to these younger bands that he was signing that he, he was hoping to uh to um uh you know sell lots of records from yeah so we uh yeah we got this call from dave saying you know we've got got a bit of a budget would you like to do another shrewback record and come on tour with us on, on this uh, is how it is. His label's name was World Domination, and uh, <laughs> uh, we, yeah. So there were, I think, three other bands, and um, including Dave's new band plus Streetback, and we went on the road in '92, having produced the Sacred City album. So Sacred City was very much kind of right, fuck commercial commercial records and fuck record producers we're just going to do it exactly what we want and um you know if they can't take a joke so be it so we did sacred city which um was one of the happiest albums i've ever done i think we really enjoyed doing it and it was absolutely what i wanted to say and and uh but it came out of course in a, in a welter of grunge in the states so couldn't get arrested really but um yeah, I'm still very proud of it. Yes. And then obviously things got parked again for another decade almost. And then sort of... No, not really. It was um, uh, 96. We put the uh, put an acoustic version of the band together and recorded um, Naked Apes and Pond Life, which was the album after Sacred City. And we did quite a lot of... There, there was uh, me, Martin, Lou Edmonds and Mark Roudver. And then subsequently to Simon Edwards, bass player. And we did some, um, did quite a lot of touring, played in Europe, um, Germany, Finland, uh, lots of Brit, Brit gigs. And yeah, did this, uh, did this album with Marcus Drabs, who went on to, uh, to do Coldplay. Yes. 
it was Brian Eno's um, uh, engineer. So we did that, and I th- yeah, did a collaboration with Fluke, who I was producing for Virgin. It's a techno band. Um, that yeah, that was about ninety six, ninety seven. And then I stopped doing music completely and went uh, started making sculpture and metalwork and things of that ilk. Yes. So then sort of coming, you know, I mean, then actually you did sort of quite a few more albums, but but this year you sort of brought out, you know, why anything, why this? I mean, you know, so looking at your musical path, I mean, I mean, do you sort of are you sort of amazed that you managed to sort of survive and do so much? Because again, you know, most people feel completely chewed up by it and sort of disillusioned, but you've you sort of managed to sort of keep plugging away. Yeah, that's nice. Nice of you to say so, and <laughs> and to notice. Uh, yeah, I, I really like doing it. You know, I like making things up. I like making songs and albums. It's. Um, yeah, it's just the best fun a boy could have. Yes, and obviously, but the other thing is because you've you know you've worked with so many different artists and musicians in different you know in in the band and probably your solo projects. I mean, dealing with all those kind of dynamics. I mean, are you somebody who sort of can can deal with that relatively well and easily? No, not really. I I'd say um, you know I've quite stuck in my ways to tell you the truth, and. Um, Working with people that I know really well and have known for years, like Martin and Carl, you know, it's everybody. Everybody's got the thing that they do in that particular configuration, and it's uh, you know that that's so that's easy. Um, and the other thing I do is work where I've I've got like sole musical control, and people come in and do their things, and I can say yes or no. Yes. Really, yeah, it's just not like I'm running out and I know there's, yeah, there's this great new band. I, th- I decided I was going to uh, collaborate with them on a new project. And then you have got, you've got to make some new ground rules then, haven't you, at some point? Or you sniff around each other in a sort of careful way. And um, yeah, I don't think I would be very good at that. Which no. is probably, I don't do it. No. I mean, the other thing um, is kind of people, you know, dealing with the admin and legality and the paperwork. I mean, did you manage to sort of keep a, a handle on your music and the publishing to, because, you know, you've got a phenomenal amount of work and, you know, you've, you've obviously gone through quite a, a few record labels and probably management. So how did that sort of pan out? Well, to be honest, the um, uh, from the, uh, the, big, the big record label years, um, because occasionally we get people uh, getting in touch to say, I'm putting together a compilation album of, you know, weirdo bands from the 80s or whatever it might be. Uh, we want to use um, a track off Oil and Gold, say. And uh, and we've asked everybody, you know, because uh, it was came out on Arista. Then Arista got um, subsumed by BMG, who were their parent company. And then BMG, in turn, got engulfed and devoured by Universal. And somewhere in the, in the middle of all that, uh, there's some Shriekback uh, paperwork and some Shriekback masters, presumably. But um, nobody knows where. So, yeah, these enough people have got in touch with me saying, I can't think of anyone else to talk to. Nobody seems to know where all this stuff is. Um, so I'm just asking you, can I use it? Can I use it? And I always go, yes. Give me some money, and you can. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, I was um, lost in the in the mists of time, really. Quite a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, with with a lot of people, sort of bringing their work back together. You know, especially as we sort of go through the decades you know when you think actually it'd be quite nice to archive it and have it nicely packaged and mostly yeah. you know cherry red records seems to have hoovered up most of the indie labels um you know that always seems such a sort of important thing that someone says yeah yeah this is all my work and and now it's kind of there it's available and the next generation if so want to can um access it so i just wondered if you've managed to sort of keep your piece you know like i mean david bowie you know looking at what he did you think god actually you know, you must have started, you know, he must have started in the period which there wasn't a lot of people to look at to see what they did and what they did well and wrong. But, you know, you realise that actually, you know, he did manage to sort of keep all his work quite well archived and it's kind of available. So I just wondered how you managed to do that. Um, so there was a bit of frantic scrabbling around and we got had some very good um, friends in the States mostly who'd... Uh, who had access to um, old material and who've been very generous with it. So um, I don't know if you're aware, I've been putting stuff out on, it's kind of Shriekback's own, own label, Shriek Prods. And um, the last two albums have come out on uh, on that. And I've also been re-releasing stuff like Jam Science and um, uh, some old demos from the big night music period and old peel sessions there's there's i don't know probably about probably about 15 different releases um that are out there and they uh, one way or another tend to find their way up onto spotify and so you know every everything we've ever done i think is now up on spotify so in a way that's a, that's the kind of that's the way of the future isn't it i mean it's not, yes. it's not to be box box sets of cds anymore just for christmas when you're desperate for some present for somebody i think it's the box set time isn't it i've i've got a lot of time for the solid object that you can sell yes <laughs> bloody download that you get from saint me for yes and obviously i mean you know with all your experience what would you kind of say to your 18 year old self oh yeah i've, I've had that conversation in my head um quite a few times Plus, you know, um, my son is uh, a musician. He's 33 now, but he's, he's got a band called The Vales. So there was a, uh, quite a lot of um, me going, son, <laughs> <laughs> listen to your old dad. Um, I mean, for me, I, he's, Finn actually seems to be, uh, uh, to sail through it all a lot more easily than I used to. Um, I think one thing would be don't be scared of um giving people a bit of direction don't be don't be scared of uh um having a vision and insisting on it i think that's one thing and um don't worry about being cool or commercial and um don't take drugs in the studio and do the washing up <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, because actually, cause, you know, I just realised that with the, the League of Gentlemen, um, you played with Robert Fripp, who who sort of would appear with David on David Bowie's material occasionally. And he always had a cheeky little smile, didn't he, when he talked about certain chords that would apparently make people horny. So did you, you know, pl playing with people like that, was that kind of, did, <laughs> did you did you feel kind of a bit of excitement, think, oh, this is Robert Fripp, the man? 
not Robert so much, to be honest. I was, uh, the only thing I I know known that he'd done was um, 20th Century Schizoid Man, which I sort of you know, they used to play at Swindon College, and when I was a teenager, I thought it was kind of horrible, and it was um, guitar solo driven, which was obviously as a as a punk, you kind of that was anathema. So um, yeah, no, it wasn't really. Uh, he he was a sort of prog rock guitarist. So uh, that wasn't all that cool in my mind. Iggy Pop, though, I was I was flattered to play with Iggy Pop, and David Bowie came down to some of the sessions that we did with Iggy. So that was all. That was more like it. That was more like these are guys I actually do respect. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. It was I didn't respect. I, I just didn't sort of uh, like anything he'd done, basically. <laughs> No, well, I, it was only his collaboration work that I was always a bit more curious about. But um, yes, well, look, I'm glad that, um, yes, I'm glad we managed to get a, a linked yeah. up again. But Barry, thank you ever so much for your time. And I'll tell tell you, and um, is it Shona? Your Shona. 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 Who, who's yeah. very on the case when, when this piece goes out. But um, yeah, thanks a lot for that. And um, yes, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll sort of send you an email through on that. Is that okay? Yes. That'd be great, David. Yeah, appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. Okay, take care. Have a good day. You too, man. See ya. Bye-bye.